Hey, well, Prof Horner, I'm thankful for this time to be with you. I've mentioned to you just briefly that uh, you've had a profound impact on my life uh, through your Bible reading plan. And uh, I just finished my 10th year of doing it. I started my freshman year of college. You had mentioned it in your English composition class. And ever since then, as I watched someone who was thrilled by what God had done in transforming their lives through just a devotion to reading scripture, uh, for an accounting major at the time, that was what I wanted. I didn't know if I'd ever study the Bible to a further degree academically, but I knew that God's word needed to change my life. So I'm thankful for your influence on me. I wanted you to just introduce yourself. So you're a, a professor here. You do a number of other things. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, my name is Grant Horner. Um, <clears throat> I have been at the Master's University since 1999. Before that, I was working at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Duke University. I also taught at the University of Alabama for a little while, did some of my doctoral work at Claremont Graduate University. And I am a scholar of the Renaissance and the Reformation. So I teach a number of courses in literature, cultural studies, art history, film, uh, theories of interpretation, those kinds of things. I'm the founder and the director of the uh, classical liberal arts program, which is kind of an old fashioned medieval renaissance uh, kind of an education in the classics of Western culture uh, that uh, we started a couple of years ago. And I'm also the founder and director of the Masters University in Italy study abroad program where we live in a big castle in the Apennines in the hills up above the city of Florence in Northern Italy and study the humanities. That's awesome. I, uh, I'd like to go to the <clears throat> castle. Um, so, Prof. Warner, talk to me a little bit about your story, your life before Christ. I know kind of the headlines from what you've mentioned in class and from what I've read, but tell us a little bit more about how you came to know the Lord and what your life was like before that. Yeah, my testimony can probably be reduced to four words. I should be dead. Best friend in high school, dead. Another friend of mine that was in my martial arts class, I did karate for years, found out she was pregnant when she was in college and told her boyfriend, he said, too bad, get an abortion. She said, I'm Catholic, can't do that. He said, too bad. <clears throat> she drank a bottle of vodka, took a bunch of pills, killed herself and her baby. I could go down and rattle off all the people that I knew when I was, you know, 15 to 18 years old. And uh, the number of them that are dead that didn't, didn't make it that didn't survive various kinds of rehab or other things it's 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 a long it's a long list uh if i had been caught in say 1981 or 1982 selling amphetamines or lsd i still would not be out on parole because of the way the drugs law, drug laws were um <clears throat> the people that i used to buy from Artie and eddie up on joyce lane in annapolis maryland 25 years to life uh, a couple of days before they were busted by the feds, I was up there making a buy with one of my friends who is, who's now dead. Um, and, and that's where I should be. When I was uh, 18 years old, after about four years of smoking pot, doing so much speed amphetamines that even my druggy friends were saying, you really need to slow down with the speed, taking uh, sometimes five, six, seven doses of LSD on a weekend. Um, uh, after about four years of that, when I was off at college, barely limping by with about a 1.2 GPA, 
uh, I met a girl who handed me a Bible and a couple of her friends invited me to a Bible study. And I went, I was an English major. I thought, yeah, I can read. I probably should read the Bible. I had tried to read it before. I remember I would open up the Bible and read this. Oh yeah, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's familiar. Re read this uh, business a little bit further along in Genesis and then a little bit further along in the Old Testament. And it seemed to just rapidly turn into a list of <clears throat> dead people with names that I couldn't pronounce. And uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll try the New Testament. So they hand me the New Testament and I open it up to Matthew chapter one. I'm like, what more of this? You know, I can't pronounce these names. Let me flip over to Luke. More of that? And then at the age of 18, on a very cold February day in the mountains of Western Maryland, after a three-day binger of weed and whiskey and speed and LSD, my girlfriend, um, who had given me the Bible, was away on a track meet. And I was very, very deeply unhappy. And I opened up the Bible. And I made the worst mistake a pagan can ever make, which is I began to read the opening of the Gospel of John. Now, I thought I was pretty smart, and I was an English major, and I thought, I can read and understand anything. And I opened up, and I read those opening lines, and I was shattered. And I kept reading in those first couple of chapters of John. I didn't understand it. Who, who, who is this word? And who is this John the Baptist guy? And what is repentance? And what is sin? And I kept reading... And eventually, in the midst of my confusion, I pressed forward into John chapter 3 and verse 16. And I was, I know that one! I know that one! My sweet Presbyterian grandmother had always written that in every birthday and Christmas card I ever got. I didn't know what that was. I had no idea. And I remembered back to this aunt that I had had, actually a great aunt, Aunt Lucy. And we would go visit her at the old folks' home. And I'm 10, 11 years old, 8 years old, 12 years old, visiting Aunt Lucy Bored out of my mind. Why are we going to say, this is all old people. There's nothing to do here. And she would put me on her lap and put her hand on my head and talk to me and kind of mumble. And I was like, why are all these pictures of Jesus on the wall here? I found out after she passed away that she'd actually been a missionary. I had never heard that before in my family. And when I'm 18 years old, I'm in my dorm room coming down from that massive trip and I'm reading the Bible and I'm remembering what my grandmother wrote in my birthday cards and Christmas cards and how my Aunt Lucy used to sit there and put her hand on my head when I was a little kid. And then I realized that my aunt had been praying for me. I had no idea. And I, I just I just kind of had what most people call a breakdown. I just, I fell apart. I fell apart. I mean, here, I still had a stash in my room of LSD and speed and weed and, and uh, and I'm on the floor crying out, God, I know, I know you're real. I know you're real. And I don't know what you're like, but I'm terrified that you hate me, that you're angry with me and that I'm, I'm in trouble. Much worse than when I was a little kid and would get in trouble with my parents. And, and uh, I remember, I can specifically, I can clearly remember saying, I don't know because I can't see, feel, taste, touch, handle you. I don't know if you're real, but I'm willing to be willing to believe not knowing I was actually quoting the disciples, help our unbelief. Yeah. And I had never really heard a gospel sermon before. I had never read a, a tract. No one had ever witnessed to me with the fullness of the gospel. I was just alone in a dorm room coming down from a trip, and I got saved. And it was, it was just miraculous. It was miraculous. And instantly I lost my desire for, and I had been high constantly for four years since I was 14. 
instantly all my desire for that just just went away. I mean, I, I would guess you could say it was kind of miraculously delivered from from all that drug use. It just went away, and I never I never had a taste for it since. Well, and, and so your life was changed in in a moment in your dorm room. And then did you just continue to read and study the Bible or did you get plugged into a church from there? Or kind of like what happened then for the remainder of yeah. college? Yeah. What I continued to be was a horrible person. Yeah. I had all the worst possible habits. I was kind of miraculously delivered from the mentally and physically deleterious effects of, of heavy drug use. So that went away. But it took me a number of years before my brain got back in order. I couldn't read. I was kind of like had a almost like a severe ADD program, uh, kind of a situation. I couldn't, I couldn't read. I couldn't think. I couldn't follow through with things that I was saying. So it, it took me about five years before that actually uh, went away and I went back to college. I got kicked out at the end of that semester because I was, I mean, I got saved, but they don't care about that at the registrar's office. I had a 0, 0.00. And this is at a bottom fourth tier state university. So you get kicked out of a place like that, you're done. And <clears throat> so I had, you know, habituated myself to all of these continual sins. I was a constant pathological liar. Not just about, you know, did you rob the bank? No, no. It was like, what, what did you have for dinner today? And I went to McDonald's and I went to Burger King. I mean, I just lied about everything all the time, constantly. Um, uh, thought I was incredibly humble. We know what that means, right? Thought I was brilliant. No, I thought I was just the most wonderful guy in the world. And I was just completely saturated with, with a habituated pattern of sinful behavior. And it took a number of years before God slowly began to to weed and in some cases beat that uh, out of me before I began to even grow at all. So while I had an almost immediate change in the area of, of drug use, <clears throat> the other things took many, many years before they began to before they began to change. And a large part of that was getting married. Uh, I got baptized uh, almost a year later. Uh, we, we started uh, having kids. And because my brain was fried and I figured, well, I got kicked out of Frostburg State College. That means I'm at the bottom of the loser heap. But that's okay. I got a nice girl. I'm a Christian now. And I got a job shoveling manure on a dairy farm. And that's wow. what I began to do. And I, and I, and I did what people would, would probably call agricultural labor for about 10 years. Halfway through that, my, my mind kind of woke back up. And I realized I can read, I can put together two or three coherent sentences, and I got talked into going back to college. So I went to college and finished college between 25 and 29, and then went to graduate school after that. I had no idea. Yeah. So you went back to school, and then as you were working on a dairy farm then, mm -hmm. uh, just a renewed passion for English and the arts was renewed then yeah. at that point, and you wanted to continue yeah. to study I, that? I, 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 when I decided that I wanted to go back to school at night, I had a wife and I had two kids. And uh, I, I just decided I wanted to become a teacher, maybe history, maybe English, maybe both in high school level. And so we looked, you know, we lived in this rural area Well, the nearest college is an hour away. Well, you know, I've got a $200 car. Yeah. So I'll put on a new, you know, uh, fan belt and hopefully it'll make it. And I would work all day, sometimes 10 or 12 hours a day. I got a new job closer to home on another, you know, basically working a shovel. And where was this at this uh, point? This was in Maryland, in okay. Northern Maryland. Yeah. Okay. And so we had two little kids and my wife just agreed, okay, I'm going to be like a single mom for a couple of years while you go to school. So I worked all day, 10, 12, sometimes 13 hours a day, hard physical work and heat and humidity and, and freezing cold weather in the winter. And, uh, and then at uh, six o'clock when I finished work, um, I would get in my, my little car and I would drive an hour north to York, Pennsylvania mm. to go to college. And I went to, I went to school through there. Wow. And then 
at that point you were trying to become a teacher because you enjoyed just the conversations that inevitably flowed from history or yeah, writing. Or... That's right. Yeah. I, you know, the first time I walked back on a college campus, I was like, everyone's going to know I've got failure stamped on my head. I was terrified. And I sat in on a, a 100 level class. And I was like, I, actually, I think I, I can do this. And you have to understand I had done so much. You know, my wife always says, you know, if, Horner, if you hadn't done all that uh, acid, you'd probably be a reasonably intelligent person. Right. And, and uh, so, but eventually God kind of healed my mind enough that I went back to school. I graduated with 3.97. It was that algebra B plus that I got yeah. that killed my 4.0. And in my last year of undergraduate, when I was 29, uh, I got talked into going to graduate school to train to become a professor instead of a high school teacher. Wow. Wow. That's, a, that's amazing. So you, you've mentioned a couple of times healing of the mind. Mm -hmm. Your brain had to be changed. And I think sometimes we view that as merely a metaphor, but that was a reality for oh, you. Oh, sure. Um, talk to me a little bit about your Bible reading plan. I've mentioned just the impact that has had on my life. Mm -hmm. And as we look at the scripture, it talks about the renewing of our mind. I think sometimes we think that's like hyperbole <clears throat> to emphasize that God changes us. But in many ways, that's a reality or it is a reality. And that was manifested just in your life. Talk to us about how God's word uh, was a big shaper of that for you. Right. It was certainly the primary shaper. There were a lot of things that were happening to me between, say, 18 and, yeah. and 25 when I went back to school, and even 30 when I went off to grad school. I got married, had had two, and then eventually three kids. Yeah. I was working all day long, working a shovel, bend down, bend down, all day long. That's why my back still you know, causes me trouble all these years uh, later. I had also become very heavily involved in, in rock climbing, and that, strangely enough, I mean, it's an athletic outdoor adventure endeavor, but it also requires um, a, a very intense level of focus yeah. and self-discipline and control of the mind, especially the, 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 the sensation of fear and things like that. So raising a family, learning how to be married, doing this, you know, demanding athletic thing, they were important kind of pillars along the way. But the most important thing was learning how to read the Bible. So I mentioned that when I first picked yeah. up that, that Bible, I still have that original Bible from 1982, oh. uh, actually. Um, <clears throat> I, I found that I couldn't read it. I couldn't focus. My mm -hmm. mind was very scrambled. And uh, even a year after being a, be becoming a believer and, and about that time getting married, I just found I, I just I can't seem to do this. I would try it. I'm going I'm to do my devotions and I'm going to read X or Y or Z, and I'm going to read this on this day and that on that day. And it didn't work. And then I would try a calendar program. And then, I, you know, within a week or two, I'd fall a day or two behind him, and I'd feel guilty. Oh, I can't do it. God must hate me. I'm, I'm terrible. And I tried this and that and the other system, and nothing seemed to, seemed to work. And eventually, I came across um, uh, the idea of reading the Bible by genre, right? Because you've got Old Testament history, you've got the wisdom literature, you have the Psalms and you have the prophets and you have Proverbs. You have these kind of different segments of, of the Bible, how, how it's working literarily in different ways. And the New Testament does the same thing, right? You have Matthew through Acts, which is history and so on and yeah. so forth. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I saw a list that had broken it up into different kind of genre lists. And so I took that and adapted it and kind of recrafted it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do this crazy thing. I can't seem to get through one or two chapters of the Bible a day consistently. I can't do it. And if it's linked to a calendar, I just end up feeling guilty because I get behind. Yeah. And so I decided I'm going to try for a month to read 10 chapters of the Bible a day. 
across all the different genres. I'm not going to just read straight through Romans. I'm going to read some of Genesis and some of Matthew and some of Romans and some of Acts and a, pro, a chapter of Proverbs every day. And, and so I, I just made this list and I wrote it down in my Bible. And I actually still, you know, I mean, I've had the same Bible here for, for 38 uh, years now. And I wrote, I actually wrote this thing uh, down at the uh, at a couple of blank pages in between, you know, the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I wrote these lists down. I thought, you know, I'll, I'll last a week, maybe two weeks. And, and then what I'll, year is this I'll, at this yeah. point? This, this is, this is um, probably about January of 1983. Okay, so early. Very early. Early on, on in your yeah. faith. Okay. And so I make this list. I'm like, this, you know, but I'm going to try. I was trying all kinds of things because yeah. my mind is scrambled, but I'm really, I mean, I, I want to learn how to love God. I want to learn how to, to hate my sin because I still really love my sin. I still do. I love it way too much. And so I began to read it. And here's what happened. Instead of getting confused after a couple of chapters of Romans, I was finding out that Romans was building on what Moses says in Genesis. And Genesis is actually closely linked to Joshua. And Joshua was not uninvolved with the book of Acts. And every day the Psalms became food for me. And every day I would read through a chapter of Proverbs. And I was like, I can't believe how much wisdom I lack. But here's the place that I can find it. And so I started reading through 10 chapters of the Bible a day. And within a month, I had read 300 chapters of the Bible. That's a significant piece of the Bible in one month. And I couldn't believe how I was changing. It was not changing my behavior, but it was changing my attitudes. And most of all, it was changing my desires. Mm -hmm. I was beginning to desire to be good much more than I had. And I was beginning to desire... Um, uh, stepping away from loving my sin so much. And then I did it for two months, and then I did it for six months. And before before long, I had read through all of these different lists, and the lists are set up, and you can find this online anywhere, the lists are set up in such a way that it rotates through differently every cycle that you work through. And if you think that, oh, 10 chapters of the Bible, how am I, I don't have time for that. It is so easy to do. I mean, you can just eliminate one or two little things in your life because it doesn't take that long. The Bible yeah. is not as big as we think. The New Testament is not, you know, in number of words, is actually not much longer than the A section in a typical large city newspaper. It's just not that big, right? Think about the amount of time that we spend reading the news or looking at social media or looking at funny cat videos or memes or any of a number of other things that didn't cats, exist back though, yeah. then. Yeah. Well, I only watch the cat videos where the cats are, you know, having a hard time. Those ones <laughs> yeah. I like because I'm a dog person. No offense amen, to the cat amen. people. Yeah. And so I began doing that. And what happened was within a year, the pastor of our Southern Baptist church, who was kind of mentoring me at the time, said, I'd like you to teach an adult Sunday school class. I'm a brand new Christian. But what had happened was I, I had become already so saturated in the word that people were coming to me and asking me, well, where is this in Second Chronicles? And, you know, what do you think about, you know, Romans chapter seven? I hear different interpretations of that. And it was it, it was in some ways wonderful for me. In other ways, it was really bad because it, it built up my, my arrogance to a super high fever pitch. Yeah. And I was put in charge of a class probably far, far, far too early. Yeah. But what happened was, over time, Scripture, which is better at beating you down than anything else, yeah. and better at building you up than anything else, began to do those two things to me. Hmm. Well, so then talk to us a little bit then about the impact that plan has had just on even other people's life. You know, even for me, it's funny because mm -hmm. I teach through the Bible and I'm interacting with students and at this point I have things memorized or passages of scripture memorized. I never sought out to memorize. Like when I was here, I memorized first John for Dr. Halstead's class. Mm -hmm. 
But as I've read through the plan just so many times now at this point, I'm able to kind of bring things to mind and even how in John it says the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all the things that I've said and done. I think we have kind of an ambiguous perspective on what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So how does, how in your life has being filled with God's Word been married to your understanding of being filled with God's Spirit? And then consequently, how has that impacted other lives that you know of and hear of? Right. Well, the Word of God is life. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it is life. It is what leads you to life. It's what gives you new life. It's what gives you a life of, of, of true freedom, right? It is the life that gives you hope. It's the life that uh, weeds sin out of your life. It's the life uh, that, that leads you to God, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the Word of God is, is kind of like the, the textual reiteration of Jesus Christ himself. I mean, he is the living Word. And uh, there, there are no shortcuts to growth. There are no shortcuts to maturity. There, are, there are, there, there are no things you can do other than knowing the word and studying it prayerfully that will make you grow. I mean, that is the root of everything. Every growth that comes from something other than knowing the word is a growth that is not. It's not really going to work for you spiritually. There are other ways that God grows you, but it's always grounded in the knowledge of Scripture because Scripture is what keeps you in the truth and, and, and shows you how to discern your way through a constant labyrinthine tangle of errors, mm. right? And so what, what began to happen to me was I did this for about a half a dozen years, from about 19 when I got married. Yes, I was 19 when I got married. Um, uh, what happened was I read the Bible over and over, and at certain points for sometimes several months at a time, I would actually end up doubling it. I'd do 10 in the morning and 10 at night, right? So I, I go from being the guy that you could buy really, really good LSD and weed from uh, to the guy who's kind of got, you know, let the, me tell you about my Bible yeah. imprinted on yeah. my head, yeah. right? And I and I and I noticed I began to because I kept this and this is this is a, one of the crucial aspects of the program. I noticed that I, that that in keeping the same Bible because I've had the same one. It's, this is the, the fourth binding. Uh, the if if you keep reading around and around and around in the same Bible, you begin to imprint that Bible visually. Mm. Okay, and. What happened was when someone would quote something like, you know, oh yeah, in First John chapter one, he says we confess our sins. I immediately go left hand page, left hand column, but it goes back up to the right hand column in the middle of the second clause of the verse. Right? It just became visually imprinted on my mind. Yeah. So if you say Second Corinthians thirteen five, I can turn right to it and I can picture what it's going to say in the right hand column, halfway down on the right side of the page, and and it just began to become ingrained into my head. And that is what began to change, not just desires and motivations and change my heart, but actually over time began to change my, my behavior, which again was habituated in, in many very, very bad direction because, you know, I mean, I think Calvin is right. We are totally depraved. Yeah. And the parts of us that aren't depraved are the most particularly depraved parts. We actually think that there are parts of us that aren't depraved, that everything is depraved. And so over time, what happened was that imprinting changed me and then it quite literally healed healed my mind and healed my soul yeah. to the point where I was able to go back to school. Yeah. Prof Horner, I'm not even sure how to best articulate this question, but in this environment or really just in any Christian environment, I feel like there could potentially be a danger to merely approach the scripture from an academic perspective or for a pastor who's preparing to preach a sermon 
And that could potentially be divorced from just a devotion to love the Bible and let it change and transform our lives. What would be your response or your exhortation to someone to just read outside of a ministerial objective or an academic study just to read the Bible and grow in their love for it? Right. What's your favorite food? Ooh, pasta. Pad thai, actually. Pad thai. Oh, now, do you like it really hot or do you like it on the sweeter side? Spicy. Yeah. I am too. Yeah. My wife and I are, are Thai food fanatics, and we walk into Thai restaurants like, Bangkok hot, please. We want it hot. We want we want towels because we're going to sweat so much. <laughs> yeah, we like the hot thai. Okay. So, do you have to eat pad thai or do you get to eat pad thai? I get to eat you it. Get oh, to I, I kind of I feel like I have to, but I get to yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. You ever been in love with a girl? I, I'm married, so yeah. I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I do love okay. her. So you get to be with her or you have to be with her? I get to be with her. I, and I feel like I have to be with her as well. Yeah, yeah they yeah. kind of blend in, in a special yeah. way, right? Yeah, it should be that way with the word, right? If it becomes a duty, you should probably stop and wait till the hunger builds in you. What happens is everything that, everything that human beings consumed, everything that human beings consume, right, that gives us pleasure, does not satisfy the hunger, it increases it. This is why people don't go to a museum and look at one thing and leave. This is why no one watches one movie. They always watch more movies. This is why people will binge on Netflix or food or drink or drugs or other or sex or other things, right? Human beings are actually, think of it this way, we're like machines that are designed to be addicted. This is why addiction is, a, is such a normal human experience addiction to this, that, or the other thing, right? We are designed to continually consume the things that give us pleasure. God has designed us that way. In the fall, that becomes broken and we desire the wrong things, mm. right? But when we are repaired, and this will increase while we're being repaired in this life, what happens is those, those addictions begin to shift from the bad things to the good things. And it's the same thing with Scripture. If we, if we have a desire for scripture and we read scripture, we love scripture, it increases our desire for more of it, right? If you love someone, you want to be with them more and more, not less and less. And so scripture is the same way. And so what happens is we do have a tendency, especially in a Christian school, college, university, or even a Sunday school class yeah. to academicize it, to intellectualize it, yeah. right? And if we do that, we're going to lose a large part of the benefit. And so you should never not be reading scripture devotionally, even if you're looking up, you know, Greek words and you're figuring out an objective genitive problem, right? If that should be done devotionally, even intellectual theological work is something that should primarily be devotional. And so what, what I think we very, very often miss with scripture is, well, I have to read or I ought to read or I need to read as opposed to I want to and I love to because it feeds me, right? Mm. Because, you know, you know, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy tells us that scripture is like food, mm. right? And food is something that you don't eat, you don't eat once and then you're done with eating for your life. It's something you need, you need it on a regular basis, you need it in regular short intervals, mm. right? And so what happens is none of us have the natural desire for scripture. As a matter of fact, I hate reading scripture because it's so convicting. Mm. What you have to do is you have to ask God to give you the hunger for it. So if you find that you don't have it, then you say, just like with James and wisdom, right? You ask God, I, I don't have the hunger. Please give me the hunger. And he will do that. But it's something that you become habituated to. And the more you read, the more you study, the more it changes you, the more it blesses you and makes you filled with joy, the more that you want to do it. 
it doesn't mean that some of the work of reading scripture, it doesn't mean that it's never intellectual. It doesn't yeah. mean that it can't be done academically, uh, but it has to be more than anything else has to be done devotionally. Yeah. So you talk about, you said, if it feels like a duty, you should stop and pray and ask God to give you that hunger. That's right. Then in what regard is there a confluence between praying that God would give us that hunger and then living in obedience to read and simultaneously asking God to give me a hunger for what I'm reading that maybe I'm indifferent to right now. Because I think it's even in your PDF, it says that at, at a certain point you realized you were starving yourself. Right. Um, where does that prayer go hand in hand with discipline or how would you respond to that? Yeah, it's it's very much a continuum. That's a great question. It's very much a continuum with a whole series of feedback loops built in. But that's the way God has designed us and that's part of what needs to be repaired after the brokenness of the fall. And so God has built, you know, spiritual maturing over time is an increasingly tight set of feedback loops. You learn to, to, to repent of your sin. Then you learn to hate your sin. Then you learn to love righteousness. Then you learn to have a taste for righteousness. And then you have, then you learn, you, you grow into a place where that is all you want. Okay. Same thing with prayer. Same thing with scripture. Same thing with loving uh, uh, your neighbor. Um, most most of us who are humans don't like a whole lot of people. A whole lot of people are annoying and they hurt us. And, we, and there are lots of things not to like about human beings. But when you become a believer, you you your nature begins to change, and you begin to have love and compassion and and costly care for for other people. It's very much the same thing with scripture and prayer. And so there's this constant kind of feedback loop. If you're if if you have a life of actively listening to God and speaking to God and praising and worshiping God, he's going to increase your desire for scripture because you're loving someone that you don't know that well. And scripture is one of the main ways that you get to know him. You also get to know him through prayer, but prayer has to be guided by scripture. Because if you just start praying, "Oh God, show me who you are," you might be opening yourself up to things that are not biblical. Totally. Right? And so that has to be framed and guided. There's a kind of an architecture about who God is and who man is in Scripture. And so if you haven't studied the blueprints, you're not going to understand uh, the structure where if something, you know, comes to you in your mind as a spiritual thought uh, that, you know, well, maybe, you know, maybe there isn't a trinity. Maybe there's a quaternary. Maybe there's a fourth person of the Holy Spirit. And you start listening to that person, you're listening to the wrong person. Yeah. So it has to be guided and grounded by the architecture that's laid out in Scripture. Yeah, no, I love that. And you mentioned previously that the Psalms were your food or that you fed on the Psalms sure. as you were going about different genres. Yeah. In the Psalms, it talks about how we can taste and see that the Lord is good mm -hmm. and how that's not, I think it's Jonathan Edwards that talks about most people have, can agree that honey is sweet, but there's a difference between the person that tastes the honey mm -hmm. and knows that it is sweet. And so there's right. a part of our Christian life that is experiential. It's tasting and seeing that's that right. God is good. And I think sometimes we become removed from the experiential uh, because of a hesitancy to go to the far side of the spectrum on what that even means. But talk to us a little bit about how as you have dove into the scripture, how your relationship with God is actually personal and that you actually come to know him. I think we theologically, mm -hmm. you know, yes. even as I communicate with students or other people, I say, hey, we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Right. And yet for many people, it feels impersonal. Uh, how has yes. your relationship with the Word of God influenced your ability 
to really taste and see that God is good and to actually know him and not mm -hmm. merely theologically assent to the mm -hmm. idea that that is possible. Right. As soon as you said the word, you know, you know, the, 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 the phrase, you know, taste, you know, that Lord is good. And you mentioned honey, my mind, because of 40 years of doing this, uh, immediately starts going to other places. Um, uh, hast thou found honey? Eat as much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou return and vomit, right? Right-hand page, left-hand column, right at the bottom, right? And so I immediately start, you know, kind of concordancing, you know, that scripture with other scripture uh, because uh, my mind has been retrained over time to do that. The, pr the problem with it not being personal um, is that personal relationships are very much based on feelings, right? You know, I have strong feelings for my kids, my grandkids, my wife. I have strong feelings of closeness to my to my friends, people that I just meet, if I don't like them, I don't have strong positive feelings of them. I might have to learn how to cultivate those yeah. things. Some people I have an immediate kind of an affinity for, and we just like instant friends. You're like, you know, you're like this it's kind of soulmate friend. I just met you, but there's like this me. connection. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. I, you, okay. know, you were the first person I would, I didn't want to say it you know, publicly, yeah. but all of our true and solid wisdom consists of two kinds, right? The knowledge of the self and the knowledge of God, right? And the knowledge of God is so bound up with the knowledge of man and the knowledge of the self, that we can't find God unless we know who and what we are. And the knowledge of the self is so bound up in the knowledge of God that we can't find out who we are unless we know God. And so how do you, how, how do you get to where you can know God and know man if you kind of, both of them are kind of mutually interdependent and mutually causal? How do you do that? And, and his point is that you get to know God through Scripture, and you get to know yourself through Scripture. He even at one point says that everything in the world is very blurry and out of focus, right? So if I take these off, I, I, you know, I know that there are some people in this room, and I think the room is gray, but I, I can't see anything. But the minute that I put on what he calls the spectacles of the Scripture, everything suddenly comes into focus and I begin to see and begin to understand. So he says that the scripture are like the spectacles. You know, we all see, we're spiritually blind, but we still have a general kind of sense of how things are. But we can never dial that in. We can never really see with clarity. We never get the, the precise lines. We get, you know, shapes and colors and motion and distance, but that's about it. And so scripture really opens those things up. I found him on a dorm room floor after, you know, a 72-hour binge you know, in February 40 years ago, okay? I could also say with equal accuracy that that is where he found me. But I could also say this, he found me from before the foundation of the world, right? There's this wonderful 17th century writer I like named Sir Thomas Brown. And he has this wonderful line. He's an he's a Anglican believer. He was a physician. This is in the 17th century. So he's writing shortly after Shakespeare dies, yeah. right? And Sir Thomas Brown says, that um, though my grave be in England, yet my dying place was paradise. And I was in the mind of God before the founding of the world. And Eve miscarried of me before she conceived Cain. He was born dead. He died in Adam in paradise, right? And the only way that we can know God is by knowing ourselves. And the only way we can know ourselves is by knowing God. And the only thing, the only roadmap, the only architectural diagram, the only symphony, the only poem, the only book, the only message, the only word that communicates 
all of those truths to us is scripture. This tells me who God is. It tells me who I am. And so that's why I freaked out on the dorm room floor. Because even reading a few words, I mean, this stuff is like plutonium 235. It, 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 it's just, it, it will just absolutely blow you to pieces. And with a little bit that I read, I realized that I was, you know, the classic miserable sinner, the horrible worm, right? The depraved wretch. And I, and I knew it. God pulled back the curtain on myself yeah. just enough that I, so that I could see it. And at the same time, pulled it back a little on himself. You begin to see a little bit of God's holiness and your unholiness. And graciously, he doesn't pull back both curtains all the way all at once because we would be destroyed by that. He yeah. shows us a little bit of himself, a little bit of us, a little more of himself, a little more of us. And those things are so intertwined. And the way you learn those things is by being immersed and being saturated in Scripture. There's no other way. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that even Thomas Brown, that the idea in Ephesians 1 that he, he chose us before the foundation of the world is a crazy thought. And that's even one of the passages I don't think I ever understood until I started reading it with the full spectrum of Scripture right. in mind. I have two more questions for you, uh, really a question and a half. But first of all, it'd be I, I'm interested to hear how Scripture fuels your passions I think sometimes we look and compartmentalize what is holy and what is biblical and then our hobbies and our passions and the things we enjoy are compartmentalized and divorced from our even just our pursuit and love of God. How in your understanding and approach to scripture have not only those things been uh, kind of conjoined but really married so that you find even greater enjoyment in the things that you are passionate about? Yeah, that's a that's another great question, Johnny. He must have had a wonderful teacher at like freshman comp <laughs> yeah. all those years ago that just taught you how to think with such clarity and ask great questions. Yeah, yeah. It was, he was uh, the most interesting man. He in the had world. a little more yeah. hair. <laughs> fascinating guy, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that that's really good. Um, even pagans know that if you are a divided person, you have problems, mm. right? Psychiatrists and psychologists have this thing called dissociative personality disorder. They used to call it split personality. It's the idea that there are a whole bunch of views in there and they're all competing and fighting, right? And uh, some forms of that get close to what we might call schizophrenia, which is a kind of an emotional intellectual break from the actual reality of your work, right? So if you are split, if you are divided, if you are not accurately connected with the world and with yourself, even the pagans will say, you're mentally ill. There's something that's sick inside of you, mm. right? Uh, human beings are actually whole creatures. We are what, um, in the screw tape letters, the, the demon calls the revolting hybrid, yeah. right? It's a great line. Human beings are a revolting hybrid. They're these amphibians. They're 100% they're spirit, but also 100% material, kind of blended together. And you can never, you can never separate those, those things out. And um, it's... I, I think one of the things that you learn if you read scripture carefully is that the sense of, of shatteredness that we have, that's a result of the fall, yeah. right? And, and those people who suffer from various kinds of mental illnesses, which ultimately all have spiritual roots, of course, um, they, they are suffering the result of the fall. They're broken. But God made us to be whole, complete, and entire, right? He, he does, we, we are his image. We are the Armago Dei, right? We have the image of God. We are a reflection of God. But the mirror that is us, that is reflecting the glory of God, is broken and shattered. So he's still reflected in all the broken pieces, but the pieces don't provide a full image, okay? No one looking at, at me or at you or at you is going to go, oh, now I know what God is like. They're not going to know that. 
They're going to get little glimpses of that beauty, intelligence, memory, emotion, but they're never going to get the whole picture. So God has made us to be whole. When you know God and you're walking with God and you're growing closer to him and you're learning to love him more and you are, are striving for obedience and you're seeing the spirit enact that in your life and you're filled with the word, what you begin to realize is that no part of your life is outside the scope, outside the purview of God's lordship. Nothing, no part of it, not how you eat, not how you drink, not how you sing, not how you sleep, not how you choose to surround yourself with some people and not others. All that comes to be a part of God. And that includes things like your hobbies, your athletic endeavors, your intellectual endeavors. So, so for me, when I'm uh, studying, you know, I, I am striving to do it to the glory of God, to please him and honor him. So students are like, how did you learn eight languages when your brain was fried on drugs? And I'm like in a chair with my halogen lamp and a big mug of tea and a bunch of books. And I sat and sat and sat until I was able to do what it was that I needed to do. Right. How could you possibly do that? I'm the guy that, you know, one minute later, I forget someone's name because my mind is still has trouble with short term memory. So I have to deliberately like transfer this over into there. If I'm learning, you know, Latin noun, second declension endings, I have to deliberately transfer it into my uh, in, into my long term memory. I have, I have to work probably harder than most people because I basically fried my brain in a skillet for a bunch of years when I was younger. And so. All of the things that, that I love, you know, my wife, my kids, my grandkids, my family, my friends, my church, my school. For me, loving those things and serving those things are all acts of devotion. My wife's always like, thank you for getting up so early every morning and going and working hard. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, they didn't like it when they were younger. Yeah. But my kids as adults in their 20s, every one of them has thanked me more than once for disciplining them, teaching them, spanking them when they needed it. They've thanked me for that. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's the same thing with, you know, hobbies and athletic endeavors like rock climbing. Jimmy Carter was president when I started rock climbing. People are like, how old have you been climbing? I go to the climbing gym and they're like, you look pretty old to be doing this. Thanks a lot for the compliment. I appreciate that. Um, and, and I started rock climbing in 1979. Rocky too. Yeah. It's a long time ago, right? Twice as long as most of my students have been alive. I do high altitude mountaineering. Uh, I climb mountains that usually take people several days. I, I do it in a matter of hours. I once did, uh, this has only been done by a handful of people. I once did the, the east side, the east face of Mount Whitney, bottom to top, the summit, 14,505 feet, back down on my car in 16 hours in the dead of winter. It usually takes people three to four days to do that in the winter, and it's got a 90% failure rate. We just, we, my partner and I, we just kind of ran it and, you know, did this huge climb. It was far below zero, freezing cold. I've never been so cold in my life. Um, El Capitan in Yosemite is the big, is the largest vertical clean granite wall in the world. Um, the first ascent actually took 48 days of attempts over a year and a half. Really, really good expert teams from all around the world come to Yosemite and they do El Capitan in three to seven days. And that's like the end of a lifetime of climbing training. I've done a bunch of one-day ascents. The fastest one I did was 12 hours. Uh, there's a very small group of us that do um, big wall speed climbing, which is a completely different set of techniques, much more difficult, much more athletic. Um, and you're climbing in hours what takes people days or, or a week to do. I once climbed El Capitan on a Sunday drove home on a Sunday night, got back at 4 a.m., slept for two hours, and came in and taught a class. 
And I asked the students the next week, I said, so how was I last Monday? They were like, yeah, you were a little weird in class that day. You weren't stringing your sentences together too coherently. But if I'm up in the high mountains or I'm climbing on a little boulder, I'm at the climbing gym doing my laps to get my workouts in, or if I'm up on El Capitan in Yosemite or wherever I am, whatever I'm doing up in the mountains, whether I'm with partners or I'm, I'm soloing something, I love it because it's beautiful because I'm like, how can a human body do this? Yeah. And how is it that I can get control of, you know, the powerful emotions of, of fear and nervousness and then channel that energy into an athletic uh, performance? And how wonderful, how awesome, how totally cool is it that God designed a world that in some ways, at least, forms a playground that provides us pleasure as we experience it? How is it that God has designed this granite crack to run up this huge face and I can put my hands in there and, and stick my toes in there and climb up this thing? It's just, it's so much fun. It's mm -hmm. an intense source of pleasure for me, has been for over four decades. And um, uh, there have been days, I do a lot of soloing of big peaks up in the Sierra. I'll solo mm -hmm. sometimes two, 13,000 or 14,000 peaks in a day. I'll just run up the trail, climb the face, climb the glacier, climb the ice, get on a summit, sit up there and look around and look down, sometimes look down 7,000 feet to the tree line, a mile and a half above the tree line. I'll look down and I'll go, yep, nobody up here but me. And God is looking at all this saying, yep, I made that. It was easy. And you just see this expansive beauty of what God has has marvelously designed and and it just awes us it just awes us and there's just there's just nothing like it there's nothing like it and you can do the same thing you know playing badminton i wouldn't find that as exciting personally but anything that you can train your body to do well and to do excellently it's like training your mind to do things well god wants us to live well and to do things well and to enjoy uh the pleasure of doing those things as an act of worship to him, yeah. right? Studying and doing your homework is every bit as important and every bit as godly and every bit as devotional as reading the Bible and serving other people. The same thing with athletic endeavors or or how, how, you, how you treat your grandkids. All of those things God wants us to do well as an act of worship. Name something that, that you're, you're not supposed to do it as an act of worship. Golf. Every well, that fuels yeah. my anger. That, yeah, no, that that that's why I don't do it. I'm I'm not nearly uh, <laughs> no, I'm sanctified enough to try golf. golf. Yeah, right. T minus twenty five yeah. thousand lifetimes. No, I love that, Professor Horner, and I love even that it functions. You said as an act of worship, but even beyond that, I am so interested in how those hobbies serve as a catalyst to gospel conversations. I think sometimes our lives become so siloed, and we hang out with Christians who think like oh, us. Sure and agree with us and affirm our stance and view on everything. So even when you're saying like, man, I can't believe God made this. It's such a, a segue for conversations with people that don't know God. Oh, sure. And I uh, something I just so strongly want to promote because I don't know how much exposure the average person has with an unbeliever where they can just be doing something and go, man, I can't believe God made that. And someone goes, what do you mean? And then it serves as kind of a introductory conversation to who God is. And, and so I love that. I love, that's even part of the reason I love uh, your interest and your passion for climbing. I just have one final question. I'm so thankful for your time. Uh, some of the most interesting answers I've ever got in my life are by, are by asking the question, 
what's something that no one's ever asked you that they should have asked you that you have the a unique answer for and so it requires i guess a, a level of thought and introspection but it's always produced in my experience um just the most fascinating answers what's something that no one's ever asked you that you should they should have asked you that you have the answer to or you're passionate about I get asked a lot of questions. <laughs> I've I've done a lot of interviews and radio shows and TV shows and and every day I get emails from strangers asking about this or that because they read some book or article that I wrote. A question that no one has ever asked me before. Yeah, I'll, yeah. Here's one. It's a little awkward and painful, but the question is: so, just how? much do you struggle with sin? How sinful are you? Now here's what happens in a place like this, and here's what happens in most churches, many Christian families, Christian organizations, the world in general. The answer to the question is worse than you know. If you want to ask me how sinful I am, how much I struggle with sin, the answer is worse than you know and worse than you want to know. All of us are far more wicked than we individually realize about ourselves. And we're far more desperately sinful than anyone around us knows. And I'm speaking as someone who's been a Christian for 40 years. Someone who was mentored many decades ago by uh, a man who had been a believer for 65 years. Who had another mentor who had been a Christian for about 65 years. And who's read the Bible quite a few times and here's what here's what happens you know how scripture tells us and Jesus says very directly that we judge by the outsides because we can't see the inside most of what's inside does not ever make it outside and so all of us have a a a visible shell a persona it can be a mask that could be to a greater or lesser extent an accurate picture or an inaccurate picture of what's on the inside all right none of us is ever entirely what he or she seems ever and so this is why i i tell students sometimes students will come to me for advice about something and they'll say can i talk with you and i'm like sure and they're and, and, and i'll say is this a door open or a door closed conversation and sometimes well this is a door closed conversation i don't want anybody in the hall to hear what i have to say to you and they'll sit in my chair put their head down and go you're not going to believe this and i'll say yes i will I said you're not going to tell me anything i haven't heard before i haven't struggled with myself and uh because i've read the bible quite a few times and because i'm theologically a calvinist regarding what human nature is like I already have such a low view of you and me that nothing you can say will ever shock me. And that actually leaves me as an optimist for human beings because I couldn't possibly have a lower view of myself or anyone else. And so I think that what happens in a place like this is that all of us have an impression of others that is not entirely uh, accurate. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people will get this idea, oh, well, he's a professor at this school, or they're a pastor there, or this person is an elder or a deacon, or what a wonderful father or a great wife, or what fabulous children, right? Mm -hmm. But all of us are bubbling over cauldron. We are volcanic vents 
in the surface of humanity that are just exploding with um, sinfulness. I am. I mean, I'm the worst person I know because I know myself better than I know anyone else. And the Bible tells me in Jeremiah 17, 9 that I don't know myself well at all. Thank God for his mercy that he hasn't quite yet shown me everything about myself because I would be miserable beyond belief. And, and so what God does is he takes us, and again, I'll, I'll quote John Calvin in the Institutes, he takes us on this journey. Uh, he says that if you try and enter into God, try and enter into the mind of God, you try to understand God, you will become hopelessly lost. And if you try and enter into yourself, he has this phrase he uses over and over again, in se descendere. It's a Latin phrase which means to descend into the self. If you try and descend into yourself, to basically repel down into your soul, to climb down into the cave that is you, you will become hopelessly lost because you are a labyrinth. You are a maze. And the reason that you're a labyrinth is because God is a labyrinth. God is a maze. He is a thing that if we begin to try to enter into him, we will become hopelessly lost. We cannot understand his levels of complexity, which are infinite. And since you are created in the image of God, you mirror his infinite complexity and labyrinthine nature. And so if you try to enter into God, you're just going to get lost. If you try to enter into yourself, you're going to get lost. And anyone who reads Calvin, and Calvin was a brilliant classical scholar, right? Anyone who reads Calvin and knows a little bit about Greek and Roman mythology will recognize the myth of the labyrinth, right? Where King Minos has this, uh, uh, his, his wife Pacify has, through an adulterous relationship, uh, has produced this monstrous child. And it's not King Minos's son. It's an illegitimate son from another horrifying relationship. And that son he puts into a labyrinth underneath of his underneath of his his palace, Knossos on Crete, because he doesn't have he he he's not cruel enough to kill this innocent child. The child has the head of a bull. He's the Minotaur, right? And the Minotaur eats these human beings who are sacrificed to him. And there's a guy named Theseus who volunteers. He says, "I will go in there and I'll kill that monster because I'm tired of young people being sacrificed to this monster." So Theseus goes in there. Before Theseus enters the cave, the king's daughter Ariadne says, "Here, I've just fallen in love with you. I've got a mad crush, and I'm going to give you my ball of yarn, and tie it to the post. So when you go into the labyrinth, you'll be able to find your way back out of the labyrinth." So Theseus unwinds the thread as he goes deep into the labyrinth. He finds the Minotaur, kills the Minotaur, and because of his suddenly blooming love for Ariadne, he wants to find his way back out. So he kills the Minotaur, and he uses the thread to find his way back out. That's the classical reference, pagan Greek and Roman mythology, that Calvin uses. And he says, you are like a labyrinth, and you're trying to descend into yourself. And God is like a labyrinth, and you're trying to find your way into God. You cannot do that. And he says, but there is a thread that will lead you in and lead you out. It will lead you into the depths of God and lead you safely back out so that you can know who God is and not be destroyed. And a thread that you can use to lower yourself down into yourself and find out who you are and then climb back out. And that thread, he says, is the word. He says, the only way you can know God and survive is through the thread of the word. And the only way you can know yourself 
and survive that trip is through the thread of the word. It takes you in and it takes you out, right? And what you find when you go into the center of the labyrinth of the self is a monster. E even the great pagan thinkers know this. Freud, right, who's wrong on a lot of things, is right that at the core of the human psyche, we would call the soul, is this monster that is desperately trying to get out and, and is nothing but an appetite to consume and to destroy. Friedrich Nietzsche, who is no fan of the gospel, understands that underneath of everything, human beings are wild, raving beasts. You find this all over classical pagan thought and modern pagan thought and all over philosophy, right? The only thing that can lead us into ourselves is the scripture. The scripture will show you who you are and it will show you who God is. So at the center of the labyrinth that is me, born July 11th, 1964, to very nice parents who were good people and did their best, but I was a miserable sinner because I inherited that all the way back through Adam, right? But I am a mirror of God who was also a labyrinth. And at the center of the mystery, at the center of the labyrinth that is God is not a monster. At the center of the labyrinth is God is a God who is love and justice at the same moment culminating in the cross. At the center of the labyrinth who is God is Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God incarnate, and who saves us from the monsters that we are and then changes us, brings us out of the labyrinth, who converts us in a moment but also converts us day by day and changes us into being ready for him. I love that. I am, uh, I'm thankful for the time with you, Professor Horner, and, and thankful just for, even for, uh, I think, the, the ability to hear someone who's been thrilled and changed by the Word of God. I think many people hear that they are supposed to read, I think, a game changer for me in my life was watching you thrilled by what God had done through his word. And I could theologically know and agree that we were called to read and that it was good to read, but it was, well, I think, watching you uh, be enthralled by what God had done. And, and for me, it was the first time personified that I had seen follow me as I follow Christ in an exciting way. Mm -hmm. um, from a non-pastoral, non-Bible professor way, just even uh, even though those things are good, to just see uh, an English professor say, read, and uh, watch you thrilled by it. So I'm thankful for your influence on my life and on the lives of students and truly people all around the world, and uh, praying that this is uh, helpful for the people that will hear. So thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. Praise the Lord.